Amen. This morning, we're going to continue in our series in Samuel. Uh, we're going to be looking at Samuel chapter 10, uh, verses 1 through 27. Uh, and, and last week, uh, with, verse, uh, with chapter 9, I kind of ended on a, a cliffhanger. And I'll catch you up if you haven't been, been with us. Um, so uh, in last, last week's uh, passage, Samuel, this prophet, uh, comes in contact with Saul, just this kind of ordinary guy. Uh, but you do need to know he was uh, voted sexiest man in Israel, right? He is, uh, he is, that's what it would be today. They say he was handsomer than any man in Israel, right? So he's handsomer than any man in Israel, taller from the shoulders up. Like, from, like his shoulders are taller than anyone else in Israel. He's huge. He's a huge, good-looking dude, but normal, normal guy. Not, nothing special necessarily aside from the looks. And uh, they finally come in contact. God ordains this series of events that brings them in contact with one another. Um, and uh, and the, that event being that the donkeys get loose, uh, Saul's donkeys, his father's donkeys get loose, and, and Saul's father sends him to look for them. Ordinary, everyday kind of thing. And, and then he ultimately comes in contact with Samuel, who tells him, hey, the donkeys are fine. They share a meal together. He spends the night at, at Samuel's house. And the next morning, they're going to leave. And he says, hey, tell your servant to go on ahead. They're on the outskirts of town. So Samuel's kind of walking him out of town. They're on the outskirts of town. He says, let your servant go ahead of you. Stay here for a minute. I got something to tell you. I'm going to make known to you the word of God. And that's where the, it ends. The chapter ends right there. So that's where we're picking up this morning. And I mean, kind of gave it away with the title of the sermon. But what Samuel's going to tell him is that he's king. He said, you're going to be king. God has chosen you to be king. Crazy, extraordinary, unprecedented thing to happen. Israel never had a king before. They probably, Saul probably knew that, that people, some of the elders in Israel had asked Samuel to appoint them a king, but this has still never happened before, and Saul certainly has no reason to think it's him, it would be him. He said last week that he's from the, the smallest of the clans, the, the least important of the tribes of Israel. He's from Benjamin, and then within that tribe, his is the, the least of the clans of that tribe. And, and so he, he doesn't think, even if in his... Uh, direct community among his clan of people. He probably is a pretty important guy. His father is a wealthy landowner, uh, commander in, in battle and that kind of thing. And so, and being physically impressive, he's probably like well-known in his community, but it's still, he's from, I mean, it, it'd be like being the, the, the tallest and best looking guy in Shingle Springs, honestly. Like it's, it's just not like no, it's not that impressive. It's like, it's fine. It's good. Good for you. And, and, and Saul probably felt that way about himself. Like, yeah, hey, this is pretty good, but I'm just from here, right? I'm not from any, I'm not from anywhere special. I'm not anybody important. So we're going to see him uh, be declared king in our passage today. And when we, when we go through this, as we consider this passage, I want you to consider uh, what would you do if you were in his situation? Right? And it, not that that will ever happen to you, but that will then help us to uh, think forward to, okay, what, how will I respond when God calls me to do something extraordinary? 
right? We're going to see essentially God call Saul to do something extraordinary today. What will we do? How will we respond when God calls us to do something extraordinary? Uh, that's, I think, the benefit that we can get out of this passage more than anything. So let's keep that in mind as we start. We'll be in Samuel chapter 10, verses 1 through 8. Then Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on his head and kissed him and said, Has not Yahweh anointed you to be prince over his people Israel? And you shall reign over the people of Yahweh, and you will save them from the hand of their surrounding enemies. And this shall be the sign to you that Yahweh has anointed you to be prince over his heritage. When you depart from me today, you will meet two men by Rachel's tomb in the territory of Benjamin at Zelzah. And they will say to you, the donkeys that you went to seek are found. And now your father has ceased to care about the donkeys and is anxious about you, saying, what shall I do about my son? Then you shall go in on from there farther and come to the oak at Tabor. Three men going up to God at Bethel will meet you there, one carrying three goats, another carrying two lo three loaves of bread, another carrying a skin of wine. And they will greet you and give you two loaves of bread, which you shall accept from their hand. And after that, you shall come to Gebeath Elohim, where there is a garrison of the Philistines. And there, as soon as you come to the city, you'll meet a group of prophets coming down from the high place with harp, tambourine, flute, and lyre before them prophesying. Then the Spirit of Yahweh will rush upon you, and you will prophesy with them and be turned into another man. And when these signs meet you, do what your hand finds to do, for God is with you. Then go down before me to Gilgal, and behold, I am coming down to you to offer burnt offerings and to sacrifice peace offerings. Seven days you shall wait until I come to you and show you what you shall do. So Samuel takes this, I mean, it's very strange. Again, I think that sometimes when we read the Bible, uh, we just kind of accept what's being said. But like, if you put yourself in Saul's shoes, Samuel's this old prophet, you know, he's an old man at this time. And, uh, and he, you know, you got to think he asked him to bend down. We know that he's taller. Uh, but he's like, you know, bend down here for a second. And he bends down and he pours a flask of oil on his head and then kisses him. If that happened to you, you would be weirded out, right? That would be, that's a strange thing to happen to a person, not as strange in their day because they would be, have some familiar, familiarity with anointing. But it's not like it happened all the time. It's not like people were going around anointing each other. Uh, Saul was probably pretty taken aback by that, right? That, like, whoa, what the heck? It happened. And, and for us, we really need to process this because we got to figure out what does anointing mean, He's anointed with oil. We see the method is pretty obvious. He pours this flask of oil on his head. But to understand the purpose and meaning behind this, we need to look at anointing more uh, broadly. So first we'll look at anointed priests. This is the first time we really hear about things being, uh, people or things being anointed in the Old Testament is where God gives instructions about anointing the, the tabernacle and the priests in Exodus chapter 30. So we'll look at it briefly here. Yahweh said to Moses, take the finest spices a liquid myrrh, of liquid myrrh, 500 shekels of sweet-smelling cinnamon, half as much, that is 250, and 250 of aromatic cane and 500 of cassia, according to the shekel of the sanctuary, and a hin of olive oil. And you shall make of these a sacred anointing oil, blended as by the perfumer, it shall be a holy anointing oil. 
With it, you shall anoint the tent of meeting and the ark of the testimony and the table and all of its utensils and the lampstand and its utensils and the altar of incense and the altar of burnt offering with all its utensils and the basin and its stand. You shall consecrate them that they may be most holy. Whatever touches them will become holy. You shall anoint Aaron and his sons and consecrate them that they may serve me as priests. You shall say to the people of Israel, this shall be my holy anointing oil throughout your generations. It shall not be poured on the body of an ordinary person, and you shall make no other like it in composition. It is holy, and it shall be holy to you. Whoever compounds any like it, or whoever puts any of it on an outsider, shall be cut off from his people. Okay, so we get this, uh, this formula for this uh, special anointing oil that should be made uh, and used only in the tabernacle, on, on all of its furnishings, all of its utensils, everything should be anointed with this oil, rubbed down with this oil. It's all been mostly wood, so it's going to be rubbed down with this oil, and that's going to sink in. And then it's used on the priests themselves. Like, while they're in their robes, while they're wearing their headbands, it's going to get anointed, poured all over their robes, and then going to sink into their robes. And they're not going to wash them. Right, because they don't, it's not something that's happening in this day. So all of that is going to stay there. And if you notice in this passage, God is very specific about the formula. This, I mean, you don't think about going to uh, the Bible for perfume recipes, but there is one, right? There it is right there, this very specific recipe using olive oil as a base, using these, these very specific quantities to make this anointing oil and then very specific of only use this on the tabernacle and on the priests, not anywhere else, not any ordinary thing. Don't even try to make a smell alike, right? You don't even make something and put it in the drugstore. Like, you don't do that. None of it. It's only for the tabernacle, only for the priests. Why? Because scent, our, our sense of smell, is the sense that is most closely tied to memory. You know, you ever get that where you're like walking around, you smell something, and all of a sudden you're like immediately transported back in time to a specific place or time where that sense was familiar to you and you can remember things about it. That's what this anointing oil is meant to do for the people of Israel. Whether they're around a priest whose robes smell like that or they go near the tabernacle and they smell that smell, it reminds them this is a holy place. These people are holy, set apart for God's use, I need to be careful. I need to be careful around this. I need to respect this because this is God's. This is where God's presence dwells. This is God's mediator in the priests. They needed to know that that was what was happening and they could only have that scent used in the tabernacle. Now, based on that, we can say for sure that the blend that is poured onto Saul is not this. Right? This is not what is happening. Probably something similar in the sense of probably olive oil based and has some kind of spices and things mixed with it, but not, the, not this mix that is specifically for the tabernacle and the priest. That's something very different and it's setting them apart as holy. What is happening with the anointed kings, and we see this later on in Scripture as well, what's happening there is not the same thing as what's happening when the priests are anointed. Because the king, this king being anointed, 
the anointing of a king by a prophet before they are publicly presented to Israel indicated God's divine choice of this individual to lead God's people Israel. And that's what's happening here. Notice, there's no one to witness this. Samuel takes him to the outskirts of town, says, hey, send your only, only companion on ahead so they don't hear or know what's happening. And then while they're alone, he anoints him and tells him that he's going to lead God's people. Nobody's there to witness it. It's just between, between Samuel the prophet and Saul. Because prophets operated independently. They operate independently from, uh, from any tabernacle, right? They're not under the priests, and, and from any palace. They're not under the king. They operate independently, declaring God's word to the people. And that's what's happening here, is that he's declaring this just to Samuel, telling him that he is going to be king. So as we wrap up thinking about anointing, we also need to then consider our anointing. Because there is a new covenant anointing as well. We are also spoken of as anointed, but in a, in a slightly different way. If we look at 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 21 through 22, it says, It is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us, and who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. When we accept the gospel, the fact that Jesus died for us and rose again on our behalf, that we accept him as Savior, we accept the forgiveness that he has offered us, we declare him our Lord, we say we're going to follow him uh, for the rest of our lives, we are anointed by God himself. Maybe not directly, you know, physically with oil, but we are anointed in the same way that the priests were anointed. When we think about our anointing, it is in line with the priest's anointing, not a king's anointing. Because we have been anointed and set apart as holy, consecrated for God's use. And that's what's happening with these priests. That's what happens to us. We are holy unto him. What's happening with Saul is something different. He's being told, this is God's choice. God has chosen you to lead his people. He's being marked as a divinely chosen man here. And, and, and he's going to get some proof. He's got, Samuel's going to provide him with some proof. He tells him three pretty strange things are going to happen to you as you leave here. Right? First, you're going to meet two men who are going to tell you that your father's worried about you and the donkeys have been found. He already knows that, but if that happens, like he says it happens, that's pretty surprising. Then he's going to meet three men at another location who are going to give him two loaves of bread. Then he's going to prophesy with this group of prophets at Gebeath Elohim, uh, which means hill of God, and, and that that experience, these three things, this will transform him in, in a powerful way. And having had these experiences, Saul should then meet Samuel at Gilgal. And, 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 and that's a special location as well, because that's where Israel camped when they first entered the promised land. They first entered the promised land, that's where they were camped before they went to battle and, uh, and, and started taking the land that God told them they could have. So it's a, it's a starting place for Israel. That's a very significant that now that's where this monarchy will start because it's where he tells uh, Saul to meet him, meet Samuel. We'll look next here at verses 9 through 16. When he turned his back to leave Samuel, God gave him another heart 
And all these signs came to pass that day. When they came to Gibeah, behold, a group of prophets met him, and the Spirit of God rushed upon him, and he prophesied among them. And when all who knew him previously saw how he prophesied with the prophets, the people said to one another, what has come over this son of Kish? Is Saul also among the prophets? And a man of the place answered, and who is their father? Therefore it became a proverb, is Saul also among the prophets? When he had finished prophesying, he came to the place, the high place. Saul's uncle said to him and to his servant, where did you go? And he said, to seek the donkeys. But when we saw they were not to be found, we went to Samuel. And Saul's uncle said, please tell me what Samuel said to you. And Saul said to his uncle, he told us plainly that the donkeys had been found. But about the matter of the kingdom of which Samuel had spoken, he did not tell him anything. So we see that, that as, as Saul leaves Samuel, God gives him another heart. Right? He gives him a new heart. He changes it. He begins to change him powerfully in this experience. And, and we think about what led to this. Is, it's a pretty crazy idea that all Saul did was leave to look for the donkeys. And he's coming back a whole new man. Like it's not anything that he expected to happen to him. He's been anointed king of Israel. He's been given a new heart. We see that the Spirit of God is going to rush upon him. This is a transformative, incredible experience. And we see that he encounters all three of the signs that Samuel told him he would encounter. The only one we get any detail about is the last one, which uh, is the most surprising, right? The other ones are kind of just coincidences, maybe, that, uh, that is, it is miraculous that they happen the way that Samuel told them they would happen. Uh, but, but they're not like uh, weird experiences, but... This last one, uh, Saul comes to this place where Samuel told him he would find this band of prophets, and this band of prophets is coming down there, and, and they're, they're playing instruments, and they're prophesying. And uh, if you think that sounds weird, so did they, right? So did the original readers of this text. These guys were not considered, I think when we think of the prophets, uh, we think that like them being like, we like revere them, right? We revere the prophets because we like, well, they wrote books of the Bible. They're very important guys. They had big beards for some reason, we assume. Um, we're like, oh, the prophets. But that's not how the people thought of prophets, most of the prophets. Right? Most of the prophets, especially like these guys, are like this woohoo, little kooky, strange group. Right? They're playing their instruments. They're prophesying about God. And they're like, you know, they're going for it. Like, it's a, it's a pretty wild group that's in this like kind of religious ecstasy. Like they're, they're, they're wrapped up in God's goodness and probably proclaiming him. And Saul ends up joining them. Okay. Here, like think back to like, uh, like, cause this isn't really reality, but you know how like in movies that like at high school, they'll have like the jocks and then like the band geeks or whatever. And like those movies, this is like the quarterback going and like hanging out with the band geeks and goofing off with them, right? Because that's, that's really who Saul is. Saul, the reason that they, they ask all these incredulous questions about like, who, what has come over this son of Kish? Right? Because they're like, Kish is an important guy. Saul is his son. He's also important and he's physically impressive and he's a, a normal, ordinary guy. Why is he hanging out with these prophets and not just hanging out with them, but he's participating, Right? He's prophesying with them. He's probably like, sing. it sounds like they did some of it in, in song. So he's like singing along and getting, going off with them. And, and they're like, what has happened to him? 
What has come over him? Why is he acting like this? Right? He's having this incredible religious experience. He's having this transformative experience where God is changing him from the inside out. This is not at, this is not what he would normally do. This is not the kind of guy he normally would be. He's had a transformational experience. But there's an interesting uh, question that, it, that is thrown out here. They say, they say uh, therefore it became a proverb. In verse 12 it says, therefore they, it became a proverb, is Saul also among the prophets? And, uh, and if you've read uh, Proverbs or familiar with Proverbs, either in Scripture or even just non-Proverbs, you probably will think, well, that's the, uh, that's the worst proverb I've ever heard. Right? It doesn't sound like anything. Hey, is Saul also among the prophets? Uh, that's not, not a very good proverb. You have to have the context. Really, really what they're saying is it became a saying that was said ironically. Because, uh, and, and spoiler alert if you've never read Samuel, okay? But Saul, like, doesn't, doesn't, this doesn't go well, right? In the not-so-distant future, he ends up being in major conflict with, with uh, Samuel and, and goes just way off, strays from God. God's spirit leaves him. It doesn't go well for him. He does not do well as king. But at this moment, he's having this incredible experience where he's connected to God. He's been transformed. He has a new heart. The Spirit of God has rushed upon him. He's prophesying, meaning like not necessarily that he's predicting the future, right? That's only one aspect of prophecy. Some of it is just speaking truth, right? So he could simply be like worshiping, praising God, talking about his goodness, all of that. That could be all he's doing. But he's having this powerful experience in which he is a different man than he was, and he's closer to God than he's ever been. But we know that's not going to last. We know that he's going to fall away, that he's going to end up not anywhere near this, this place. So this is a proverb about going off on the wrong track. right? It's saying, look at Saul now. Is Saul among the prophets? Could he ever have done that? Could the man that he, certainly not the man he was before this moment, but not even the man that he ends up as could be this guy. This is a, a high point in his life where he is connected to God like he's never been before. We also might consider the question, why was Saul's anointing kept secret, right? It's delivered by Samuel in secret, and then Saul himself keeps it a secret the first time he's offered the chance to tell somebody who cares about him, right? His uncle asks him, well, what did Samuel tell you? And he probably knows something's up, right? He knows, you know, your family members will know when, like, something's going on with you, and if you're pretty good at hiding it, like, they'll go, what's going on? So he's like, okay, you know, this encounter with Samuel, I know about Samuel, like, what did he tell you? And he's like, oh, he just told me that the donkeys were found, and, uh, you know, that's all. No big deal, don't worry about it. He doesn't tell him. Why? Why doesn't he tell him what's going on? Because, like, who would believe him? Right? Imagine that going that way of being like, oh, uncle, yeah, uh, yeah, no, I, no, we went to talk to Samuel to find out where the donkeys were. He told us they're already found. Oh, what else? Oh, he also told me that I will be the king. And he'd probably get laughed, laughed at. They'd probably laugh in his face. Like, the, the, no, nobody's going to believe that. Certainly not somebody from his family's going to believe that. 
Right? They, he knew him growing up. That's, that's not going to fly. No, no way you're going to be king. So not only that, but Saul himself had to believe what God had said about him first. Because if he didn't believe it, nobody's going to believe it. He's got to believe it first for himself. Otherwise, no one else is going to believe it. He's got to believe what God has told him. This is an extraordinary thing that God is asking him to do. And this is true for us as well, that we have to believe what God has said about us. When we read scripture and we find things that God has said about who we are in Christ, we have to work on believing that for ourselves first and foremost. Believe what God has said about you. I'll give you an example. This is just one example. Romans chapter 6, 17 through 18 says, Thanks be to God that you who were once slaves to sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. So this, this passage is really briefly about that before we be, get saved, before we come to Jesus, before we are found in him, we are slaves to sin. I mean, we have no choice but to sin. We are going to do it. It's inevitable. It's going to happen. But having been transformed, having committed ourselves to him, we have become slaves of righteousness. It means we have to do what is right. We are slaves to that. That's something that's sometimes hard for us to believe is true. And sometimes we still think that we're slaves to sin. And so we continue in our sin. If we don't change how we think about ourselves and what we believe about ourselves, believe that that's true, believe we've truly been set free from our sin, that we don't have to do that anymore, that we'll ever be slaves to righteousness. We have to believe that those things are true, that that change has taken place in our hearts, that Jesus has accomplished that freedom for us. So just like we must believe that Saul here, he has to believe that this is true, that God has called him to be the king. We'll look lastly here at 17 through 27. Now Samuel called the people together to Yahweh at Mizpah, and he said to the people of Israel, thus says Yahweh, the God of Israel, I brought you up out of Egypt, and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all the kingdoms that were oppressing you. But today you have rejected your God who saves you from all your calamities and your distresses. And you have said to him, set a king over us. Now therefore present yourselves before Yahweh by your tribes and by your thousands. Then Samuel brought all the tribes of Israel near and the tribe of Benjamin was taken by Lot. He brought the tribe of Benjamin near by its clans and the clan of the Matrites was taken by Lot. And then Saul, the son of Kish, was taken by Lot. And when they sought him, they could not, he could not be found. So they inquired again of Yahweh, is there a man still to come? And Yahweh said, behold, he has hidden himself among the baggage. Then they ran and took him from there. And when he stood among the people, he was taller than any of the people from his shoulders upward. And Samuel said to all the people, do you see him whom Yahweh has chosen? There is none like him among the people. And all the people shouted, long live the king. Then Samuel told the people of the rights and the duties of the kingship, and he wrote them in the book and laid it up before Yahweh. Then Samuel sent all the people away, each one to his home. Saul also went to his home at Gibeah, and with him went men of valor whose hearts God had touched. But some worthless fellows said, how can this man save us? And they despised him and brought him no present, but he held his peace. So they have another gathering at Mizpah. The last time they gathered at Mizpah was when 
for repentance, where they repented, and then God rescued them from the Philistines. They defeated the Philistines. It's the last time that they've had trouble with the Philistines at this point. And so Samuel's going to remind them, remember, this is not what God wants for you. God is permitting them to have a king, but it's not what he wants. And like we talked about, that sometimes that's where we live. We decide to live in God's permissive will, what he'll allow for us, rather than his perfect will, what he wants for us, what's best for us. And Israel is giving them one more chance. He's giving them one more chance to live in God's perfect will versus his permissive will, but they opt for his permissive will. They opt for what he'll permit, and he's going to permit them to have a king. So then, after reminding them of who God is and what he's done for them and the fact that they're rejecting him as their king, he has them arrange themselves, right? He tells them by tribes and by clans. He has them lay themselves out, and then he casts lots. Now, there's different ways that this might have been done. We don't know the exact methodology, but it would essentially deal with uh, picking a number, picking numbers, and, and essentially allowing God to decide, determining the will of God by casting lots, by luck. So there's one, one method that some scholars suggest is that um, the, the prophet, in this case Samuel, would uh, pick a number either just in his head or he might roll some dice to select a number. And then each of the, you'd have all the, somebody representing all 12 tribes and they would put up however many fingers they wanted, right? If they really wanted the, the position, they'd put up five fingers. If they didn't, they'd put up one. They'd put up as many as they want. He's going to select the number and then he's going to go down counting the fingers, right? So one, two, three, four, five. Next guy's only three, get to that. And you keep counting up until you get to the number. And maybe you have to loop around again. But it was a way to allow God to select the person, right? And that, that was the methodology. And it's what they do here. It's how they select him. Now, when we hear about that, we might think like, well, that sounds fishy. I don't like that. I don't, I don't think we should be doing like, a, we're not going to do that, right? Like, let's not do that. Yeah, and we're not going to do that because casting lots was a common way of determining God's will in the Old Testament and it was uh, accepted and it seemed to be used by God. It wasn't wrong for them, but it's unnecessary for the church uh, because we have received the Holy Spirit. And we can see that because that's when it stops being used in Scripture, right? When uh, the last time we hear about lots being used, being cast in Scripture legitimately, is in Acts chapter 1, uh, when the disciples select uh, someone to replace uh, Judas. They, they want to select and add another disciple, which it is questionable whether that was even the right thing for them to do, uh, because they choose Matthias, and then uh, we never hear about him again, so like, what's the point? Uh, and we get Paul later on, so is he more the legitimate replacement for Judas? We're going to get way off track if I start getting into that. Um, but that's the last time we hear them, about them casting lots, because right after that, they receive the Holy Spirit, and then we don't hear about the church casting lots anymore. Uh, so that seems to be the, the difference. So they cast lots. Uh, you know, they, they, it falls on the tribe of Benjamin first. And then they go by the clans of Benjamin. And it falls on Matrites, which is Saul's, uh, Saul's clan. And then eventually it falls on Saul. But then they can't find him. They're like, okay, it's Saul. And then they're like, Saul, come on out, buddy. You, you won. You won. And, he, and he, he's nowhere to be found. And they're like, oh, maybe we have to look for somebody else. 
and Samuel consults God, and God tells him he's hiding among the baggage, which is just like so embarrassing, right? Because like, it's, <laughs> it's not a good look for a big guy to hide, <laughs> right? Like, if you're little, you can hide, but if you're a big guy, like, imagine just like the rock, like hiding, and you like pull him out. You're like, we found you, and like, oh, sorry, you know, like, he's like, as he stands up, this guy looks so ridiculous. And then they bring him out, and he's taller than everybody else. And so Samuel's like, um, obviously, obviously this is the guy. Look who God has chosen. It's obvious. And most of the people accept it right away. They accept it right away. But we think about with Saul, like we're going to hide. Like, I wonder when he went to hide. You know, because you got to think he shows up and he's like, that was a weird couple of days. The donkeys got out. I met this Samuel guy, told me I'm king. I had all these things that he predicted happen, happened to me. I was prophesying a little bit ago. Like, whew, like what a weird week this has been. Now we're going to select the king. Okay, we're going to select the king. Oh, that's, Samuel was told that was me. Oh, but he's doing this lots thing. I'm probably fine. No big deal. I'll get out of this. Oh, it fall on my tribe. Hmm, okay, like, uh, that's strange. And then it falls on his, I'm, thinking, I'm guessing it's when he fell on his clan that he was like, I gotta get out of here, right? And he just goes <laughs> and hides. But because he, he's, it's still a scary thing for him. But most of the people immediately accept him once they drag him out and, and set him up. They see he's this giant man and, and he's accepted by most of the people. They say, long live the king, there's even a group of uh, men of valor who are uh, touched by God to return with Saul and help him to establish his throne, establish his kingdom. There are some uh, people who are described as worthless fellows who doubt his ability to be a successful warrior king. But in any case, he's selected. He had been anointed. Now he's been selected in front of everyone, declared king. Now he's got to go and do the job. He's got to actually go and do it. So as we consider this, again, I want us to think about what will we do, how will we respond when God calls us to do something extraordinary? When God calls, what will you do? Because this is a good illustration of what it might be like for us when God calls us to do something extraordinary. And when I say that, I'm not, I'm not talking about the things that God has called us to do every day. Right? God has, there are things that God has called us to do every day, you know, love and serve our families, our community, Show the love of Jesus to people when we encounter them. Share the gospel when we have an opportunity to do it. Do our jobs well, right? All of these things that God has just told us to do every day. That's not what I'm talking about. But occasionally, God calls us to do something extraordinary. Maybe serve in a, a new ministry or in a new way. Step into some kind of leadership position, take a risk for the gospel, maybe go on a mission trip, right? There, there's things that God asks us to do that are different, that have never happened before, that you've never done before. It's an extraordinary thing for you to do, different, new. How do we respond when that happens? And it's important for us to consider this, even if you're not facing anything right now, or you might say like, um, I don't have anything. There's nothing that God is calling me to do that's extraordinary right now. And you very well may be right. That might be true. You might be in a time in your life where God is just asking you to be faithful to the ordinary things that he has called us to do. That's okay. That's most of our lives. 
but it's important for us to consider how will we respond when that moment comes. Pastor Jason on, uh, on Wednesdays uh, has been going over with the, the youth group uh, a series called Predecide, which is about thinking ahead of time, how will we act when faced with certain situations? So it's been lessons like, you know, predecide how you'll deal with temptation, things like that. And that's what I'm talking about here. We need to predecide how will we respond when God calls and predecide specifically to obey when God calls us to do something extraordinary. So there's some, some important steps we can plan to take as we consider this. And the first step is really to actually confirm the call. Right? Because sometimes we might feel like God is calling us to do something that he hasn't actually called us to do. Right? And there's a couple of things we need to check. First, we need to check scripture. Like, is, is God, God, yeah, I promise God's not asking you to steal anything, for example. Right, those kind of things. If somebody, you come to me and go like, yeah, you know, I, feel, I just feel like God's calling me to leave my wife. I promise he's not. <laughs> you know, like that, that kind of thing. Like there, there sometimes there's things like that where it's, if it violates scripture, God's not calling you to do it, okay? Second thing is to pray about it. Actually pray and seek him and ask if this is real and, 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 and ask him if it is what he wants for you. Prayer is an important way that we confirm uh, these kind of things. And then third thing is something that is most often neglected, I feel, and that is our brothers and sisters in Christ. Talking to our brothers and sisters in Christ who know us well, who love us, who, have been, who will pray for us, and who can give us wise counsel. And, and that person will confirm or deny, those people will confirm or deny what you have said to them. Because I went to seminary with some guys, like when I was in seminary, you know, taking these classes, I was already in ministry, but there are other guys who just decided like to go to seminary and they feel like, I feel like God has called me to be a preacher. And uh, like the consensus was, no, he hasn't, you know, like, yeah, okay, God, maybe God has called you to preach, but he hadn't called anybody to listen. So, <laughs> so that's a problem for you. Because they never, they never went through this, these steps. They never talked to anybody else about it. They never talked to any uh, people who might pray for them and consider this with them and, and, and confirm the calling that they feel that they have had. It's important for us to get a confirmation uh, of those callings. And then secondly, to believe that God has called you, right? to believe that that is true. Sometimes it's just like we just doubt that. We don't feel like we can do it. And, and we doubt that God has called us. But once we've confirmed it, we need to believe that that's true and then believe that God will equip us, right? God, believe that God will equip us to do what he has called us to do. And, and sometimes that's miraculously, sometimes that's miraculously, but, but more often it just means actually like uh, learning, training, doing things. Like that's way more often how God equips us is through ordinary means than through extraordinary means. And, and again, that's often something people neglect. They go like, well, I feel like God has uh, called me to do whatever, lead this ministry or teach this class or something like that. And you go, okay, well, how are you going to be equipped to do that? And they go, I'm sure God will come through. No, 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 that's not often. Most of the time you actually have to put in the work to actually learn how to do the thing that God has called you to do. But believe that he will equip you most often through ordinary means. And then lastly, be ready to accept the call with humility. Be ready to accept 
what God has asked you to do with humility. I'll wrap up with this three takeaways for today's message. Number one, embrace your anointing. As part of your identity, embrace the fact that you have been anointed, marked as holy by God, set apart for his use, belonging to him. And just like those priests were anointed and when people came around them, they would smell that aroma of the anointing oil and, and recognize that, that they'd been where God is. The same thing should be true for us. When people come around us, they should recognize that we are God's people, but not because you smell. Number two, see yourself in the light of Jesus, right? See yourself in light of what Jesus has done for you and believe what God has said about you. And then lastly, pre-decide to obey God when he calls. I'm going to pray here in just a second, and then we will um, take communion together in remembrance of Jesus' broken body and shed blood for us. And then uh, we'll sing the final song. And then after that, if you'd like prayer for anything, we'll have a prayer team They'll be right over here. They would love to pray for you. Just walk on up and, uh, and get some prayer. Would you bow with me now? Heavenly Father, we thank you for uh, your word that teaches us so much. And God, as we consider how Saul responded to his call, I pray that you would work in our hearts to prepare us for when you call us to do something extraordinary. And maybe that's right now. Maybe that's 10 years from now. God, we don't know. Whenever it might be, we pray that we would be ready to respond when you call us. Pray these things in the blessed name of Jesus. Amen.